In Chicago, they taught us that um, unless you can't get up out of bed, you get to the pulpit if you have to preach. This morning, I woke up quite feeling under, under the weather, and uh, so excuse me as I work through this text, um, fighting off whatever I got. So, But I want to start off in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we come together. We come together as your people. We come together because we love you, Lord. We come together because we love each other. I pray, Father, that as we come together and continue to do ministry, as we continue to uh, advance the kingdom, Father, together, Lord, that we wouldn't miss sight of you, that we would, in our hearts, always hold you dear, that you're in our hearts you would always be our preference, always be our desire, that, that the reason we do what we do is because we love you. Lord, so pray now, Lord, that you be with us this time, Lord, as we worship you through word. Be with me, Lord, accompany my, my frail, weak words, Father, for your glory and the good of your church. Amen. Title is Losing That Loving Feeling. And my main point is don't misplace your love for Christ and fail to enter paradise. Don't misplace your love for Christ and fail to enter paradise. Uh, as we walk through this life in ministry, doing church together, doing uh, the life that life, the Lord has given us in Christ, uh, the years start to stack up and they go by. And one thing that I have yearned for in the midst of that is a, a, like a report card day. I have yearned for like a, a job evaluation day. I would love to sit down and just have the Lord tell me, Andre, you're doing this and this well, but maybe you need to cinch it up over here. And Because uh, I can't judge my heart. And I, I know that I desire to please him. And I know that I desire to, to serve the church. And I, I desire all these good things. But I know that my flesh is ever present. And indwelling sin is always on to rear its ugly head. And pride steps in. I know it's there. And so I, I long and I yearn for uh, just a, a little clip, like, exactly how are you doing? And we kind of get that here in the book of Revelation. We get a day of evaluation. The apostle John has been exiled to the island of Patmos. He's uh, now over 90 years old, been serving the Lord for decades faithfully, um, preaching, teaching. Uh, and he ends up, Lord gives him a good retirement on the sunny isle of Patmos, a rocky outcropping of salt mines and, and rock pits. And um, it would be tough to, to wonder, I wonder if John ever thought, did he mess up? Or uh, is this punishment? Or is this, um, is this how it's going to end up serving the Lord faithfully? But he's on this rocky outcropping, and he says on the Lord's day, he was in the spirit, and and Jesus himself shows up to John and just blasts him with a loud trumpet. And John turns around to see the sound of loud trumpet. And there's Christ in all of his glory. He's got hair white like wool, like snow. He's got eyes like flames of fire, feet like burnished bronze. And out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And he says, I have the keys to death and of Hades. John, 90 plus years old, serving this king 
that faithfully for decades, the one that sits, who at the Last Supper, his head is tucked into the bosom of Jesus. He knew the love of Jesus. And when he turned around to see this glorious, magnificent view, he's knocked down to the ground with no strength at all. And so that is the context where we find ourselves in this second chapter. God, Jesus has told John to write down what, the things that were, the things that are, and the things that will be. And he's giving an evaluation of the seven churches in Asia Minor. These are real churches. These are historical churches. These are churches that were started by Paul. These are churches that were in the beginning faithful, strong, some fledgling, some uh, mighty. Ephesus was a mighty church. Ephesus was a staggeringly uh, rich church in the sense of its heritage, founded by Paul, pastored by Apollos. Preach. John himself was probably preaching uh, in Ephesus at the time. Served by Timothy, served by Tychicus, served by Priscilla and Aquila. This church was, if you will, Christian royalty. They had all of the excellent expert teachers and preachers and servants of the church. And so we find this evaluation. Point one is a word of caution. It's a word of caution. He says in verse one, to the angel of the church of Ephesus right, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. So the letter comes to Ephesus, and Jesus represents himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he's walking in the midst of the seven lampstands. Well, we know that the seven lampstands are those seven churches. And it makes sense that the seven churches are depicted as lights on a light on a lampstand. Jesus tells us in Matthew, we are the light of the world. We as the church corporate body, we are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it on a basket, but he puts it on a lampstand. Our job is the church, our our function in, as the means of God growing his church is to be that light to the world, that, that sounding gospel coming from the church to the world. That's why we're set on a lampstand. He's walking in, immense, in the midst of all of his churches. These are uh, individual, local bodies, churches, his people corporately together. And he walks in the midst and he puts us on a lampstand. And our function is to be the light of the world. Our function is to show a dying world the way to salvation. But it's a word of caution, isn't it? Because of the way he presents himself in the first chapter. Like I said, the, the wool, the white hair, the eyes of flame of fire. And on it, he's wearing a robe. And on the robe, he has a golden sash. And this is the picture of a high priest. This is, the, this is the function of the high priest as he walks in the midst of his church. This is Jesus himself, the head of the church, administering to the church 
examining the church, evaluating the church, holding the church up. It's his church. He has bled and died and paid the price for his church. And now he is the head elder of his church. He is the high priest. So many times in uh, churches, so many times in uh, across this country, elders will come together or leaders will come together and we strategize. And we like to, to think of how can we reach these people or how can we draw more people in or what can we do? And, there, and, and a lot of people look to um, <clears throat> marketing, they look to demographics, they look to what the experts are saying about what this generation wants or that generation needs. And sometimes we might do best if we remember this picture of Jesus walking in the midst of the lampstands. He's growing his church. He's given us the tools to grow his church. And the tools to grow his church is the word of God. The proclamation of the word of God. The gospel. That message that the world that needs so desperate that Jesus Christ, the son of God, shed his blood and died and paid for the sins of the world, that we preach that gospel, that the world sees a church shining a light of hope, of love, that they so desperately need. That's our light on that lampstand. And that's what Christ, as he walks amongst us and he's evaluating and looking at us, are we being that faithful light, showing love to a dying world. And so, his eyes, are wool, his eyes are like blazing fire as he walks around the lampstands. We had the white head wool, you know, and that's a picture of uh, this uh, aged wisdom, experiential wisdom. And if you think he might be an old fuddy-duddy, he's got eyes of flames of fire, He's got, he's got power. He's got zeal. He's not an old fuddy-duddy. He's not bumbling around. He's gazing piercingly with those eyes of flame, of fire into his church. And the feet of bronze, <clears throat> burnished bronze, picture of his ability to judge, picture of his stability, unmovable, unshakable, ready to judge. He tells us judgment starts at the house of God. And so in verse 1, we have a word of caution. A word of caution. We as the church of God, receiving the message from Christ, this is a word of caution, and it's, it's designed to say, listen up. Perk your ears up. You need to hear this church. You need to listen. Because the one speaking to you is no man. It is Christ himself. He is the author of revelation. And so what do you want to hear? What do you want to hear on the evaluation day? What kind of report card would you like to get? Well, the Lord starts out with a word of commendation. He starts out by commending them. He starts out, <clears throat> verse 2, he says, I know your deeds. I know your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And down in verse 6 he says, 
You even hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. In Titus, Paul encourages Titus or commands Titus to teach his people to be zealous for good works, that they be busy with good works. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were created for good works. And the church in Ephesus is handling it like a pro. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. They are, they are full of good deeds and they are exerting with toil. It, to toil is mean to, to ex, exert to the point of exhaustion. But they're not becoming exhausted. They're persevering. In the midst of all these good deeds, in the midst of toiling, uh, persevering, they, they continue on. They don't stop. Like, this is great commendation. This is like A plus, right? They are working. They are striving, toiling. And they have the attitude, the right attitude. They can't tolerate evil men. And they put to test those who call themselves apostles. And they aren't. You found them to be false. So not only are they full of deeds and toiling and striving, doing good deeds, doing what the church should be doing, they know their word. Their doctrine is pure. They, can, they know when, they, when a false apostle comes in. They know when somebody is teaching error. They spot it like that and they get rid of it. They have no tolerance for it. No tolerance for evil. They, they love the word. They're preaching the word. They're knowing the word. They're full of good deeds. The church is exemplary. And not only that, they're hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which some of the other seven churches were embracing. Now, we don't know exactly what the deeds of the Nicolaitans were. <clears throat> uh, the best uh, summation is that it was a sect that was teaching uh, libertinism, that uh, in Christ we are more conquerors, and it's okay to, to delve into licentious immorality. They're leading the people into gross immorality. And Ephesus wasn't going to have it. Ephesus, was that was not coming into Ephesus. This is the type of church you and I strive to be, right? This is why we from the Dallas come over to Hood River. We, we love H or FBC Hood River, right? Because we are about the word. We teach the word. We preach the word. We're about service. I know you guys are about service. I'm amazed at the numbers that attend not only the Sunday school, but the midweek studies, the prayer groups. Uh, this church reminds me of us, to be honest with you. This is, I know the hearts. I know that this is what you're striving for. I'm striving for it. Your elders are striving for it. This is why we come here. This is why we, we, we love FBC. Because we, this, is our, this is our heart's cry. So there, he says, I know your deeds. I know that you're toiling to the point of exhaustion, but you don't. You're discerning. You, you get rid of the, the evil men. You get rid of the, the imposters, or imposters. And then he says again, and in verse 3, it's just like he just, he, he reiterates, he like says it twice just to like, to, to solidify it. And you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. 
This is exemplary. This church is fantastic. This is the church that we all desire to go to, to be a part of. This is the church that in the midst of this, you're thinking, or they have got to be thinking as the messengers reading this letter to them, like, we're good. We're killing it, right? Like, thanks for the, thanks for the uh, evaluation, Jesus. But then what's the one word you don't want to hear in the midst of the commendation? But. <laughs> then there's this but. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Jesus says, you don't love me anymore. And I'll be honest with you. When I read this, it's hard for me to understand that. Because I look at their deeds. I look at their actions. It even says you're doing it for my namesake. And what have we as Christians always been taught what love is? Love is action. Right? Love is doing. John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, right? So I read this, and I come to this, and, it's, and I'm confused because love is action. Love is doing. Well, maybe. <laughs> if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, In verse 1, he says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions and to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So in the first verse, you see people with gifts, right? Speaking in tongues, speaking as angels. If I use my gifts in service for the church, but I don't do it in love, it's nothing. It's not love. Acts of service are not love. If I have all knowledge, if I, if I can explain to you exactly the doctrines of election, airtight, and, and square it up with man's responsibility, airtight. If I can get, explain all the solas, if I can do everything, I have to take this Bible and explain in detail, articulately, like an, like an angel. But I don't have love. It's nothing. That's, it's, knowledge is not love. If I give to the poor, it's not love. Giving's not love. Even faith, he says, if I have all faith, faith is not love. When John 14 has said, if you love me, you'll do as I command. What's, what, is he, what is he when he says it? If you love me, you'll do as I command. Doing the command isn't the love He's saying, if you love me, 
the fruit of that love will be the doing of my commands. Because we know moralistic people who do commands, right? And they have no love. So it's not just doing. Doing is not love. Your heart must prefer Christ, desire Christ, be set in Christ. He must hold the heartstrings of the affections of your heart. Because it starts there. He says in Job 22, 24 through 26, if you place your gold in the dust, if you throw it away, then the Almighty will be your gold, for then you will delight in the Almighty. You see what he's saying? You throw away your gold, make God your gold, and then the, your, your delight, your heart, what makes your heart burn, the preferences of your heart, the desires, God will sit there and be in that place. That's the love of God. That's what God wants. He wants to be number one in your heart. He wants the desires of your heart, the preference of your heart to be for him. So that when you do his commands, so that when you do the works that he sets before us, then they are works of love. Then the service does become a service of love. The obedience is born out of love. Love is not primarily an action. It is the preference of the heart. And that's what he's saying. Because these guys, to the, to the average standard Christian definition of love, love is action. You would look at this and just, I don't get it, Jesus. They say they're doing it in your name. They're full of deeds. They hate what you hate. It doesn't make sense if that is the definition because that's not the definition. It is the desire of your heart, the preference of your heart is set on him. He is your desire. But what happens? Wives, wives can tell you what happens, right? A marriage starts out in the first years. It's full of love. It's full of excitement. It's full of uh, anticipation. You're focused on each other. You, she has your heart. He has her heart. And the marriage is in bliss. And the years start to go by. You got to make a living. You got to get to work. You have kids. You got a mortgage to pay, bills to pay. And in the pursuit of taking care of all of that, what happens usually to the husband? He's, he's, he's focusing on making that money. He's focusing on providing. And then one day the wife comes along and what does she say? You don't love me anymore. He's like, what are you talking about? I don't love you. Everything I do is for you. Yeah, but you don't love me anymore. And, it's, and that's what happens with, with, with guys is that in the pursuit of loving the wife, in pursuit of loving the family, in pursuit of serving them, the pursuit itself starts to take our affections. The success at the job starts to feel really good. And it starts to set inside of your heart and starts to be your heart's preference. And so when she comes and says, you don't love me anymore, she's right. She's not the preference of your heart anymore. You've made your success, you made your career, you made your, your name, your reputation the preference of your heart now. 
all in the name of taking care of her, all in the name of saying, I love you and provide for you. There's duty. Duty can get away of just pure loving, right? Duty's good. Duty's good in service. Duty's good in being diligent and faithful. But do you want to be loved by duty? Do you want your husband or wife just saying, yeah, I love you, it's my duty? No, you want their heart. You want their heart to burn for you. You want their heart to, the first thing in the morning that they, they wake up, it's for you. How are you doing this morning? When you come home, how's your day been? I've been thinking about you. I've been longing for you. I'm making plans for us to get away. That's the heart of a lover. That's the heart. But that's what happens to us in the church, doesn't it? As we, as we strive to serve the Lord, as we strive to, to put our best foot forward in, in leading and <clears throat> being that light that the Lord has set up, the pursuit starts to take over. The form starts to become more important than the substance. The, the, the presentation takes first place, right? How do we order our services? We need dim lights. We need uh, contemporary music. No, we need hymns. We need, and all these things, and all of a sudden, the love for Christ starts to, to go in the back, and it's now falling in love with a love for ministry, a love for the service and the work that we do. And now we're, because now we're, we're, the, well, we're the church of high theology. In Hood River, we are the church of high theology. And it's no more we're the church of Christ. It's the church of these doctrines and this way of worshiping God and this way to, to present the truth and worship Him. And, and what falls behind is Christ. Christ starts to drift back. He's getting out of our sight. He's still there in the peripheral a little bit. But it's about form. It's about, it's about presentation. It's about if the website looks professional, right? These things start to weigh on us. These things start to take precedence. And so the confrontation, the Lord comes to him and says, you don't love me anymore. In the midst of all of your your." your faithful service in the midst of all of your doctrine, in the midst of all of your uh, shunning evil, you forgot to love me. And it's scary because it can happen. It happens in a way that it, it's just like the song, the slow fade. It's just, you don't, you don't see it. You don't see it. You don't see it until you're completely in the midst of it engulfed by it. So what do we do? What do we do if we find ourselves in that situation? What do we do if in the midst of a correction, the Lord convicts us, he hits us with it? What do we do? And what are the Ephesians to do here? What should they do? Well, I think they should receive his love. And that's what the Lord does here. Verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. When the Lord comes to us with a warning, it is love. 
It's not doom and gloom. It is love. He wants you to repent. He wants you to see the error of your way and turn back to him. This is his desire. He, he desires to, you to be in right relationship with him, to, to repent, to, to turn from your ways. And what does he say to him? He says, remember from where you have fallen. What are the Ephesians to remember? What are the Ephesians to remember? Where did they fall from? Well, if you were to go back to Acts 19, you would remember that uh, this great Ephesian church started off with 12, 12 men. Paul shows up to these 12 men, and he's talking to them, and he's like, uh, did you guys, when you were baptized, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit? And they're like, there's a Holy Spirit? They, they, don't, they don't even know the full gospel yet, but they're there, and they're, they're, they're following John the Baptist, and so Paul brings them into the fullness of the gospel. They're baptized, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. It starts off with these 12 men who don't even know the full gospel, and Paul sets up shop in the school of Tyrannus to start preaching and teaching. And he's in the school of Tyrannus, and he has it for the worst hours of the day, the hottest time of the day. And he's in the school of Tyrannus, and he's preaching and, te and teaching the, those 12 men and whoever else would come, and it was packed. And they, for two years, came and listened to Paul preach and teach the word. They loved the word. Sitting in the midst of the hottest of the day, they came there to learn because they loved the word. And what did they do with that word? They spread it all through Asia Minor. They turned Ephesus upside down. There was nobody who did not know the word of God. The, the, in the verbiage, it's the word grew. And we know the word doesn't grow, but these believers were growing. They were loving the Lord. They were loving his word, and they were not, they did not fear any man. And the word went out, and it magnified Christ. Christ was magnified. Remember where you have fallen, Ephesus. Ephesus, do you remember when the silversmith guild had to get together and determine what they were going to do with you because you were putting them out of business. Ephesus had the Temple of Diana as one of the wonders of the world. It was an extravagant, beautiful temple dedicated to the, to the god of Diana or Artemis. And it was, it was full of uh, everything that accompanies temple worship. Orgies, men who mutilated themselves, false worship, the, the, the city was drowned in false worship to this. And there were silversmiths who were making money on it, making little shrines to Artemis, making little idols. They loved the word and they loved their Lord so much they were putting these silversmiths out of business that they even had to form a meeting. What are we going to do with these Christians? Not only will our business go out, this beautiful temple of Artemis will 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 fall apart. They were concerned. This is what the love of Christians. Was it a bunch of uh, educated, sophisticated, uh, sexy Christians in Ephesus? No. It was just people who loved their Lord and loved his word and weren't afraid to share it. We are so concerned in the modern day church of being brilliant for Christ. 
sophisticated for Christ, educated for Christ. And when you watch a lot of the pastors and a lot of presentations, they are sexy for Christ. And they want you to see it. They want you to see their strength. They want you to see how well they speak and talk and how sophisticated you are. That's not going to build the church. The strength of man will not build the church. It will not. And so you get this, these Ephesian believers. Do you remember Ephesus? Do you remember, remember where you fell, Ephesus? Do you remember when you came together with all of your magic books? Do you remember that? Remember when the love of God compelled you and you took all those magic books and you burned them and it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver? And when Mr. Pragmatist came along and said, wait, wait, wait a minute, guys. Hey, everything's preordained. God, doctrines of election. Hey, don't worry about burning. Don't worry if other people get these books. God's got his elect. Pagans are going to pagan. We need this 50,000 pieces of silver. We could add on to the, forget the school of Tyrannus. We can build our own comfortable uh, schoolhouse. Think what we could do with 50,000 pieces of silver. <sighs> Mr. Pragmas is always there to destroy the faith of the church. But what did these, what did these Ephesian believers do? No, no, to the wind with our 50,000 pieces of silver. To the wind, I want, I want Ephesus, I want Asia Minor to know that Christ is now my king. Christ is now my God. He holds my heart. To the wind with these bucks, to the wind with it all. Do you remember Ephesus? These acts of love, do you remember the word growing? Do you remember Asia turning upside down? You burned your books. Ephesus, do you remember when the sons of Sceva tried taking the name of your God to go do exorcisms? Do you remember when those seven, seven sons of Sceva tried exorcising in the name of, of Paul's Jesus? And the demon turns to him and says, Jesus, I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the, and the, and the demon uh, then proceeds to, to, to whoop him. Now, if there's any, under, if you ever get in a fight and you start the fight with clothes on and at the end of the fight, you don't have clothes on anymore, you were whooped. <laughs> Ephesus was on fire. Ephesus was exploding. And it was just with people who loved Jesus. They just loved him. And they had to share him. They had to. To, to let the world know about their, their Savior. Do you remember, FBC, when you first came to Christ? Do you remember when the Lord saved you? Do you remember those sweet, sweet days of knowing yourself saved when you felt like you could run into a burning building and preach Christ and save people. Like all you wanted to do was tell people about Christ. Do you remember those sweet days? I remember them. I miss those days. I miss that, that, that zeal and that fire. He says, remember. Remember your love for me. Remember Remember the deeds you did before that were born out of 
your heart just preferring me. Remember that? That's the corrective. Go back to that. Go back to the love you had at the beginning. And what will happen? What will happen if you do that? Back to chapter 2. Verse 7, the consequences. He has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This, our love growing cold, is really serious. The threat here is the church being removed off the lampstand, right? And the thought of that is unthinkable, right? We don't want the church to be removed. We want our church to grow even more. We want to keep shining those lights. We want, we want all these pews filled up. But it's even, it's even more dangerous than that. Because he says, if you overcome... I will grant to you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If our love gets so misplaced and grows so cold, what's in jeopardy is not only losing the church, it's losing your life. You will not participate of the tree of life that's in the garden of paradise. God is love. And his children are love. We are, the, we are the offspring of God. And as the offspring of God, we will follow in the characteristic traits of our Father. And he is of love and we will be of love. John himself taught all about this. The world will know that we are Christians by how? Our, our love, our love, our love for one another. There's no such thing as a loveless Christian. There's no such thing. It's impossible. But if you overcome eternity, paradise, everlasting life is there and it's yours forever. So this morning, as we look at this evaluation, as we look at the warning to the church of Ephesus, it's a real warning to Ephesus, right? This is a real church. But the problems of Ephesus and the other churches, they're perennial problems of the churches through the ages. We're all going to experience these things. We're all going to come in danger of them. And so it's also a warning to us, a warning to us who love the word, who love the church, who love serving the church. Don't let love serving the church become the love. Christ has to always be the love as we serve the church. I want to leave you with one last word. Romans chapter 2. I can't get over this verse. Romans chapter 2. Starting in verse 6, I'll read. Well, let me start in verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath 
and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. I know your deeds. He says it over and over in these warnings to the church. I know your deeds. He's going to render according to our deeds. But here's the hope, brothers and sisters. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. As we go over the definition of love, and I'm now questioning, <laughs> uh, I'm telling you, service isn't love, deeds isn't love, knowing's not love. And then people come to this verse here and we look at it and like, it seems a little selfish, right? It seems a little selfish what they're doing. They're seeking for honor and glory and immortality. That's why they're doing good. They're seeking the honor of Christ. If you love him, the fitting end to your Christian life is when you stand before him and he turns and he recognizes you. Can you imagine any greater reward? Your heart, the desires of your heart, the preferences of your heart for Christ, the sufferings that you go through this life in serving him, day in, day out. John's 90 years old on an island mining salt. He's seeking for honor and glory and immortality because he loves Jesus, he wants the honor that comes from Jesus. He wants to hear Jesus say, John, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what they're seeking. That's why we suffer. That's why we lose this life. Because we love him in the praise he's going to give us. Can you imagine God recognizing us? Your joy will explode on that day. You know even, haven't even come close to experiencing that kind of joy. You have to have a new body to even experience it. It's going to be so glorious. These men, and I want to send you out, and women... They seek honor and glory and immortality because they love the Lord. So church, I just send you out. Go out and love your Lord and seek his praise.